Welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Emily Tate, a reporter here covering K-12. You can probably think back to a book, or many books, that in some way changed your life. Maybe it was by Dr. Seuss, Judy Bloom, or Jane Austen. For me, I was in high school and it was looking for Alaska, along with every other book written by John Green. For a lot of people, it was the Harry Potter series. When our guest today read Harry Potter, it marked a profound turning point for her, but probably not for a reason you'd easily guess. Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, now a professor of literacy, culture, and international education at the University of Pennsylvania, was a fifth grade teacher in Detroit when she first got her hands on a Harry Potter book. Like just about everyone I know, she was drawn into the story and fell in love with the novels immediately. But Dr. Thomas reached another turning point when she read a sentence in one of the early books in the series that led off with a simple descriptor, a tall black girl. It was a new character, one who would go on to become captain of the Gryffindor Quidditch team, a big deal in the wizarding world. I was thrilled, and I was in my early 20s when I first read those words, but it just goes to show that by age 22, I had not read a popular fantasy with a character that looked like me. Something changed for her in that moment. Soon after, she enrolled in graduate school and became a children's literature researcher and critic, focusing on how people of color are portrayed in books intended for young readers. For today's episode, I've sat down with Dr. Thomas about what she's learned in the last 20 years, like the three types of Black protagonists most often found in children's literature, and whether the books available to kids today feature more diverse characters than they did when she was growing up. I'll admit, I learned a lot from this conversation. It got me thinking about things I'd never stopped to consider before, like how fortunate I was to grow up reading books about characters I identified with. And Dr. Thomas hopes her work will spread that kind of awareness and encourage more diversity in the books that kids today grow up with. So as someone who now studies the role of race and class and culture, when you think back at your own experience as a child reading, did you ever think about how those characters related to you, how you related to them, whether there were characters that you could see yourself in? Definitely. So yeah, I've begun theorizing my experiences as a child reader in my forthcoming book, The Dark Fantastic, Race and the Imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games. So I don't begin the book with Harry Potter because I was in my late teens and very early 20s when Joanne Rowling first began publishing those books. I grew up during the 1980s, so I read quite different literature. I feel as if there was always a rebellion in my soul. So unlike the generation before me and every generation before mine, I had some African-American children's literature to read. However, most of the African-American children's literature that my generation had was like eating our vegetables. Thinking about the Black child characters in those stories, you know, they were meant to teach us something, to teach us about our glorious past and the fact that we had come so very far as a people. So these narratives were all about racial uplift. So they would be about slavery and freedom. The characters would be enslaved. They would be about overcoming racism during Jim Crow and the civil rights era. Or more rarely, they were, this is what it's like to live in the ghetto. So those were the only three kinds of Black characters that you tended to find in stories as protagonists. But when I was younger, 
it just felt like I was doubling up on history lessons. I wanted to read about fairy tales and science fiction and fantasy. I wanted fun reads, what I considered fun reads. It's not necessarily fun to have to be confronted with racism and, you know, whether or not it's in the past or the present as a child. And unfortunately, a lot of those early books, that was all we had. Now, you do need those stories. All kids need all kinds of stories. We need both stories that are historical and reflect our contemporary reality, but we also need stories that are meant to foster the imagination, that are to stretch our sense of what is possible. And I argue in my forthcoming book, The Dark Fantastic, that only some kids get all kinds of stories. The rest of us don't get that. We exist for a purpose in children's literature. We don't just exist. So would you say then that almost a measure of our progress in terms of representing diversity in literature, one way of looking at that is whether it does more than just tell us history, but also everyday life, or like you're saying, fantasy and imaginative stories. Is that almost like a barometer for how far we might have come? I think so. But I also argue that we need to figure out what is actually happening to the Black character in the fairy tale or in a fantasy or science fiction novel, because sometimes we're present, but bad things happen to us. So I traced the story of four Black girl protagonists in The Dark Fantastic. So these are stories where we are present as one of a cast or an ensemble of characters, which is very common in speculative fiction. But for some strange reason, even when that Black girl character is meant to be sympathetic, strange things happen to her. And I've traced that journey that the Black girl character takes from page to the screen. So I look at Rue from The Hunger Games, Angelina Johnson from the Harry Potter series, Gwen from the BBC's adaptation of Merlin, and Bonnie Bennett from the CW series, The Vampire Diaries. You're talking about your own experience, and you were talking about growing up in the 80s and the kind of literature that was available then. How do you compare that to what it looks like today? Is this something that has improved over time? Are we at least tracking in the right direction? We have pivoted toward the right direction. I mean, sometimes I'll I'll say, oh, we've made such progress. I tend to be on the optimistic side and perhaps the more liberal, moderate side. I'm critical. But, uh, you know, some of my colleagues believe that children's literature really hasn't done enough. And as a matter of fact, what they've done is more insidious. They have only done so much so that we'll be quiet. So it's like painting lipstick on a pig. I actually do think that we're starting to pivot just because of demography. I mean, the demographics of where children and teens are going in the United States means that very, very soon, the vast majority of kids in the country are not going to reflect what kids look like in literature and media. And so that disconnect means that many of those kids are going to begin to disengage. And as we've seen with the generations after mine, the millennials, and especially Generation Z, they are demanding more. You know, I didn't even know that you could demand more 
because, you know, I grew up entirely before the internet. So um, I was born in the late seventies. And so I was, I didn't get an email address until I was a sophomore in undergrad. And there was no way for me to say, well, you know, it kind of stinks that in most books, I'm a slave or I am marching for civil rights. Both of those are part of my heritage, but I don't think that that should determine whether or not I could, you know, see myself as um, a magician or a detective or a superhero. But as a kid, there was nothing around me to even point toward what I had been longing for. I didn't know until I was an adult. And I saw in the Harry Potter novels, Angelina Johnson existed just with four words, a tall black girl of course, on the Gryffindor Quidditch team, I was thrilled. And I was in my early 20s when I first read those words. But it just goes to show that by age 22, I had not read a popular fantasy with a character that looked like me. There wasn't the sea of material that there were for my friends who, you know, were white. Why do you think that is? And do you have ideas for how we can begin to move the needle or maybe just move the needle faster on that? Well, I think part of the problem is that the history of publishing in the West, so not just um, (laughs) children's literature, but the very history of publishing and media and advertising and representation of the West has been extremely and incredibly racist from its inception. Publishing um, was a primary means by which negative information, stereotypes, and other controlling ideas were spread to each successive generation. If you look at children's literature published before the civil rights movement, most of the time when a black child character appears, he or she or they are a caricature. So they are not an actual representation of a black child. And the more popular the narrative, often the more skewed that character tends to be. So one of the most popular stories from the early 20th century that is still being published today is Helen Bannerman's Little Black Sambo. And so what happened in children's literature that's quite unfortunate is that you began with racist images and stereotypes from the period of Atlantic slavery, the period immediately after where there was backlash against emancipation and manumission. And then that brings us to the very early 20th century. You have generations upon generations of people who grow up seeing everything from Little Black Sambo to the Gollywog figure to the Mammy figure in children's literature and in the very earliest cartoons. So if you look at early Bugs Bunny, and if you look at early Mickey Mouse, there are some incredibly racist stereotypes there. So you have that generation that grew up around the turn of the 20th century. But then you move forward, and then you have a generation of children's writers who grew up reading those books. Those were the only representations of people of color that they had. So then you have Dr. Seuss, who early on was really problematic in his depictions of race, but then evolved and grew over the course of his lifetime. You have Roald Dahl, where the Oompa Loompas were originally meant 
to be African pygmies because they grew up on very colonialist, racist children's literature. And then our generation, so um, late boomers, Generation X, early millennials, reread Dr. Seuss and Roald Dahl growing up. So do you see how the first step in changing things is not saying, okay, let's paper it over and put diverse books out in, on the shelves and in kids' hands. I think we have to understand how representations of children have been passed from one generation to the next, examine them, and then interrupt that cycle so that going forward, we're very cautious. It's not to be afraid. So sometimes people think we diversity advocates, we want you to be afraid about what you write about people of color or indigenous folks or lesbian and gay or trans kids. You know, ooh, be very careful. But that is not really it. What we want people to do is to be thoughtful about the fact that you only know what you have learned and then experienced throughout your lifetime. And so therefore, if you're writing about experiences outside of your own, it would behoove you to be mindful and thoughtful about how you're representing people and to assume that you, like I, have been unconsciously absorbing some very problematic stereotypes from our earliest memories, from the earliest times in our lives. And that's not because we're bad people, but that's because we live in the world that we live in. You kind of make it sound like this is going to be a really long, slow process that we move out of. Yeah. I mean, there are no quick fixes. So if we want to get rid of stereotypes in children's literature, and we know we can't do it next year because there's already stuff in motion, how do we then <laughs> make sure that by 2050, there are no vestiges of the past as far as racist depictions are concerned. That means you have to work backwards. It's just like teaching reading and writing. How do you decolonize children's literature? Well, working backwards, how do you first begin to think about giving kids a balance of stories of not only the self, but also of the self within an interconnected world? So how do we decenter the kinds of kids that have always been the protagonists in stories or actually have them share the stage with other kinds of kids? So each year you publish a list of recommended titles for young readers and these span from picture books to young adult fiction to comics and graphic novels. Could you share some books from the last few years that really stand out as being some that would be beneficial for students to, to read and learn from? I have a really great case study and then I can name a few other titles. So one phenomenon that I've watched over the past few years is Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give from the time she was querying agents four or five years ago to her finding an agent, finding a publisher, and then remaining on the New York Times bestseller list, not even just on that list, but at the very top of it for over a year. One of the things that doesn't get said in Angie's phenomenal story is that where she began was as the We Need Diverse Books Coalition's first grant recipient. So I am pleased. So it was a wonderful story, but I would submit to you that 10 years ago it couldn't get published. So now with the advocacy around diverse books over the past five years, 
yes, we see that not only kind of story like that about, you know, Black Lives Matter, about activism in the South, we have this phenomenal runaway success story in The Hate You Give. And now her second book is out on the come up. And I've read it. I love it. I think that she's a spectacular addition to children's and young adult literature. If you look at the past five years, there has been a pivot in the right direction because we are getting some phenomenal indigenous and authors of color. Another debut author whose work I love is E.B. Zaboy. She has three books out now. So in 2017, her debut novel, American Street, was a finalist for the National Book Award. And since then, she's come out with two more books, Pride, which was a hip-hop retelling of Pride and Prejudice, and Black Enough, which is an anthology that collects stories from some very exciting authors of African descent. Um, Beyond Black children's and young adult literature, which is my area of focus and specialty, other amazing authors whose work I've enjoyed include Sayatani Dasgupta, who wrote the Serpent Secret series and is a sociology professor at a university in New York. But this is an amazing South Asian fantasy story for middle grade. So that's for even younger kids. So that was the kind of story that I would have loved reading as a seventh grader. So Sayatani Dasgupta's books. And then, of course, we have Elizabeth Acevedo's um, The Poet X, which is just incredible. She just won the National Book Award and the Prince Award for her novel in verse. There are so many incredible picture book authors as well. I think where I would like to see more movement is in the early chapter books and in early middle grades. So we're getting diverse picture books and we're getting diverse YA and middle grade. So middle grade is really, they're acquiring much more middle grade that is diverse. I'd like to see the middle filled in a bit more, as well as board books. There really aren't very many diverse board books for babies and toddlers and early readers younger than age four. Finally, one more place to get amazing recommendations. So we spend so much time critiquing the books and not enough saying what's great about the books. But Teaching for Changes, See What We See Coalition is a group that I'm very proud to be part of. And we select excellent books and review them. And these are books that are doing everything right, that make all kids feel good when they read them and that we'd like to see more of from especially the major publishers. So I want to go back to The Hate You Give because that book, I think it was published in 2017. It has flown off the shelves. It's been made into a film. I think it's been widely read in classrooms all over the U.S. But the storyline there, and I haven't read it, so correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but it's about a teenage girl that lives in a poor neighborhood, but goes to a nicer suburban prep school, and she sees her best friend fatally shot by a police officer. So you were talking earlier in this conversation about so many of the stories about Black life are about slavery and Jim Crow. You know, how is this different? Because it is still, it is a tough subject and it's a grim topic. Mm-hmm. How is it different in that way that it's not just heaping on more negativity? 
That's a very good question. And I think it's a question that's still being debated among those of us who um, are working in Black children's literature. So there has been critique recently of what might be known as Black pain narratives. And I think there are two defenses that I have for The Hate You Give, Tiffany D. Jackson's Monday's Not Coming, and similar urban books that are very popular with young adult readers. So the first is that it is very painful (laughs) to be Black in the United States very often because racism and prejudice and white supremacy are actually factors in life. So I think that these books do provide a mirror for kids' experiences. However, the second defense I have of that is that these books are written with well-rounded characters who are not stereotypes. So all too often when we get the Black pain narrative, whether or not it's set during the slavery period, Jim Crow, civil rights, or the contemporary ghetto, generally you have stereotypical elements in those characters' families. So one of the things that I loved about Star in The Hate You Give was that she was not stereotypical. And it wasn't just because she went to a white private school. It was because she was a huge Harry Potter fangirl. It was because she had a dad who was into Black self-determination and talked a lot about that with his kids. She comes from a two-parent home. She comes from a blended family. And you see Star wrestling with the complexity of her neighborhood. And I think our very best Black children's authors have been doing that quietly for quite a long time, particularly the authors that came in right after I was a child. So we have Nikki Grimes, the incredible ambassador for young people's literature, Jacqueline Woodson, who has won every award in children's literature imaginable. We have Jason Reynolds and Kwame Alexander and Renee Watson, who are of my generation, who are really wrestling with the contemporary reality of many Black kids' lives, whether they're in the inner city, the suburbs, or elsewhere, but also showing that they are incredibly, beautifully human. So it's not just that, oh, I'm poor and I'm you know, broke and I'm struggling to stay out of a gang, you know. It's like you could be poor and broke and struggling to avoid a gang while being a virtuoso in your school orchestra or being the concertmaster for your school orchestra. You could play Dungeons and Dragons and have a dad who's in prison. But that facet of our lives is completely, completely invisible. It's almost like Black life in stories is often walking cardboard. And so I think the nuance that these younger and newer authors are bringing in to the children's literature world is just incredible. We've always had it. So we always had M.C. Higgins the Great. Um, We had Virginia Hamilton's Folk Tales, The House of Dyes Trier. So we had a few. But once you read those few books, childhood is long and so are the summers you would be done with everything by the 4th of July. And then you go to read classics where you are either absent or if you're present, you sometimes didn't want to be present because you'd cringe over what the Black character did or said. 
This has been the Ed Surge On Air Podcast. Each week, we feature conversations like this one, so please subscribe to keep up with future episodes. And you can support the show by taking a minute to tell us how we're doing with a rating or review. This episode was edited by me, Emily Tate, and produced by Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening.